Hi, welcome to Off Script. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're talking about Megan. The new horror sci-fi film is out. Uh, we're going to talk about it. We also took a look at Netflix's The Pale Blue Eye. I think this one's flying under people's radar because uh, it's got Christian Bale and, and Harry Melling, but it's directed by Scott Cooper, who did Crazy Heart and Out of the Furnace and a bunch of other half-decent features. So we watched it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about some upcoming trailers, some things that are happening, notably not on the trailer park this week. Uh, no Ant-Man <laughs> final trailer. <laughs> it came out today. I think Andy and I are just sick of seeing it. Oh, my God. I've seen the Ant-Man trailer a billion times. I think that the Marvel fatigue is a little real right now, and hopefully this will (laughs) invigorate the 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 franchise. Because, yeah, I mean, Faye Snore was – it was tough. Even with – I mean, Black Panther was really – pretty solid but yes. man it was it was a chore to the last 18 months of marvel have been a chore to get through i know i feel like anybody who's been going to see you know half of the marvel movies that have come out have got to start feeling like boy like these are all starting to all these colors are starting to run together They're all, it's all starting to feel the same you're not really doing anything new um you know ant-man well, i can't wa- i can't wait to see our heroes go to a new exciting universe that they've never been to before boy that's gonna be weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what's most exciting about this one is that we we will see the introduction, the formal introduction of Kang the Conqueror, who's supposed to be the big mm. bad guy for uh, phase four, five, six, um, similar to Thanos was for the, the first three. So th- that's something to be excited about. It's true. I saw some articles saying that some producer or somebody was saying that this one's supposed to be just as important as like Captain America Winter Soldier or Captain America Civil War. Like this is going to be a huge Marvel feature. And it's like, yeah, okay. Okay. Ant-Man 3. Sure. I'll believe it when I see it. And with that, we should get to the news. Uh, first story this week. Uh, Gladiator 2 has a star. Yeah. If you didn't know, Ridley Scott is making a sequel to this 2000 historical epic Gladiator. And we now have our lead, uh, Paul Mescal, who is in the feature After Sun, which got a bunch of critical acclaim uh, just at the end of last year. Uh, he's the guy. And he kind of he kind of looks like uh, uh, Russell Crowe, so it works out. Uh, yeah, Paul Mescal's uh, kind of having a renaissance. He he's been in this stuff, in lots of stuff over the pandemic. Been in a lot of movies. He's uh, definitely an up and come. I mean, actor is going to be a big name, a household name uh, eventually. And yes, we're getting a sequel. I was really confused by this because I had heard of a completely different sequel to this movie, where like Maximus travels through time or is embodied by different generals throughout history is very bizarre storyline but no this is going to be a proper sequel taking place you know a few decades after the first gladiator with uh lucius the the son of uh the love interest played by connie nielsen uh all grown up and having somehow i'm sure finding himself in the arena being you know having been influenced by seeing maximus the gladiator uh fight in the arena and uh, that's, we don't really have any story details now, but it looks like this thing is happening. It's true. Uh, I, I did think it was interesting. Reportedly, Joaquin Phoenix is going to be back, which is cool, uh, along with Vanessa Kirby. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, I can't believe there's going to be a Gladiator 2. I'm in the same boat as you. I, I heard about the script floating around that was real goofy. It was like the script of Forrest Gump 2. Like, yeah. real off the wall. Like, going to the moon and doing all... I mean, not really going to the moon, but doing weird stuff, right? So, this sounds a lot more grounded. Uh, this is going to be coming... Hot off the heels of Ridley Scott's next movie, um, this upcoming Napoleon Bonaparte movie, which is wild, because the last time I heard about a big Napoleon Bonaparte movie getting made, uh, Stanley Kubrick wanted to pull one together and never did. That was like something he was trying to do his whole life. But 
Uh, apparently, Scott's taking a swing at it, and shortly after Bonaparte, we're going to be getting ads for Gladiator 2. We were talking about this in the, in the group chat. What are they going to call Gladiator 2? It can't just be Gladiator 2. It, it's got to be... No, it's going to be Gladiator something, colon something. Gladiator Origins, or Gladiator <laughs> yeah. Redemption, or... Yeah. A Gladiator... Yeah, Lucius, yes. a Gladiator story. Gladiator uh, Bloodlines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like... Uh, something like that. The thing about about this though is that sword and sandal epics are really risky. Uh, they're super expensive to make, and sometimes they they absolutely flop. Just ask Ridley Scott in his The Last Duel. <laughs> right. Just which, ask Ridley Scott. <laughs> which was also uh, the that has uh, uh, this big opening battle scene, which is back into that sword and sandal uh, kind of you know every lots of people on horseback armor the whole works and that movie totally flops so I, this will probably do better better because of, of brand recognition but uh it's gonna be a risk worth noting though if anybody i think should take a swing at sword and sandal it's probably ridley scott because yeah for every miss he's out of hit i think and for what it's worth if you haven't seen the last duel over on hbo if you're in the u.s uh it's pretty good actually it's like it's a, it's a bit of a sleeper a- andy saw it a while back recommended it i finally watched it yeah last duel is not a bad movie uh, it just didn't pop at the box office. Hopefully, hopefully, Gladiator Two will have stronger legs. Uh, speaking of speaking of strong legs, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's new movie is in peril. <laughs> apparently, in things are, things are not going well. <laughs> oh my God! Yes, claim director Francis Ford Coppola of such features as The Godfather and Apocalypse Now, uh, and 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 Dra- Dracula, of course, uh, is making a new film. Entirely funded by himself. Uh, it's like $120 million. There's always a, there's a golden rule in Hollywood. Never spend your own money. And he's throwing that to the wall. And he's saying, I'm doing it. And apparently the budget is ballooning out of control. Uh, <laughs> there's crazy problems with the the the, 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 the effects. And he's firing people. Uh, what, Andy, what's going on? Uh, Megalopolis is this new movie that he's doing. Total total shambles. It's a star-studded thing. It's probably going to be a three-hour epic. Uh, he a, a lot of the production staff and art director just quit, and he also fired the entire visual effects uh, team. And so, you know, it, it's a big... <laughs> it's totally in shambles on set, but uh, he's pushing through. He's persevering. This is a passion project. He's wanted to make this uh, his whole life. He's been working towards it. He's finally, you know, at the ripe old age of 83, pushing through it. Uh, it seems like a disaster, but sometimes uh, pictures like productions like these manage to turn out a good movie. His own Apocalypse Now is is probably the best example of that. Yeah, uh, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, I'm flipping through some of the set photos that, like, I don't know, paparazzi picked up on IMDb. Uh, it looks okay. <laughs> it looks like it needs some work. Uh, the story is uh, Adam Driver plays a. Uh, oh God, I just had it up. Uh, he play he plays a, an architect uh, it, that wants to rebuild New York in, in glamorous fashion following some kind of disaster. Uh, also includes Shia LaBeouf, uh, Giancarlo Esposito, Forrest Whitaker, Lawrence Fishburne, John Voight, uh, Jason Schwartzman, Dustin Hoffman, Aubrey Plaza's in this movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, pretty pretty decent cast. Costumes are looking a little goofy, but boy, Coppola looks beleaguered, man. He looks like he needs a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he like, I mean, he's in his nineties, like, and he's fun in his own movie, and like, I can only imagine the stress that comes with that. Not to mention, uh, yeah, he's gonna be working with special effects teams that are pretty tuned into twenty twenty two, twenty twenty three. What's going on now? Um, 
I, I, I imagine there's going to be some clashes. Though apparently this isn't the first time that uh, <laughs> Coppola's had issues with the effects team on set. So, yeah, so Coppola also famously fired the entire visual effects team in 1992's Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, which was his hit and kind of his last hit. He's another one of these directors that his career is front-loaded. Everything that he made that we know, Godfather, Godfather 2, Apocalypse Now, all that was at the front half of his career and he really he hasn't had a hit since 92's dracula so it's gonna be rough out there (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna be rough out there yeah it sure is uh yeah recent features include uh supernova youth without youth tetro twixt in 2011 featuring young alden ehrenreich and uh distant vision in 2016 which i looked up this was like this weird semi-live cinematic experience that was broadcast on like a handful of college television stations like it's like this experimental thing it's really nothing there aren't even any photos from it so uh other than that he's been running his wineries you might have seen francis ford coppola wine available at your local spirits and you know booze store uh but apparently he sold a bunch of those wineries to fund this movie so boy i really hope he can pull his vision into the screen because it looks like people might be having a tough time. Uh, our last story this week, Avatar 2 crosses $1.7 billion at the box office, uh, and Megan scares up a $30 million opening. Headline, courtesy of Hollywood Reporter. I don't think I'd ever read anything as clever as Megan scares up a $30 million opening. But uh, <laughs> Megan's doing pretty well at the box office. $30 million's not blowing anybody's socks off but for a horror movie that cost almost nothing to make. I mean, shoot, that's pretty good. Yeah, Megan only cost $12 million to make, has made $45 million globally, $30 million in the U.S., so it's a certified hit already, and it's only been out a week, and uh, they're already talking sequel. They're moving forward. It's going to make some more money. You know, it's horror se- seems to always do well, e- even in the face of a giant like like Avatar. Uh, it, it's cheap to make. <laughs> it's it's accessible. It's It's got a built-in fan base. Uh, they also... We'll talk about this a little bit later. Megan is also succeeding from kind of meme magic and and uh, virality. Uh, you know, it had, it's had this d- silly dance in the trailer that went famous on TikTok. Um, so it's doing really well. And, of course, the juggernaut that is Avatar 2, which we have both been so wrong about. Or maybe I've just been so wrong about. Wow. Um, nearing two billion at, at the global box office, which no one no one predicted. Um, I, a lot of people they say never to bet against James Cameron. I did. I was wrong. I did. I just didn't think, based on everything we know about pu- the public going <laughs> cinema, this is defied all expectations. I mean, comfortably over half of Avatar 2's like returns is international markets. Over a billion of that one point seven billion comes from places. Any night I've ever been to. Like, for what it's worth, yeah, we talk about movies a lot, but we're pretty America-centric. And you're right. Like, yeah, we shouldn't bet against James Cameron. I didn't think, like, I thought it would clear a billion. I think Andy did, too, by the, by the end of our last episode before it came out. But I don't think either of us thought it was on track to clear, two. And currently, it is, which is crazy. I mean, tie-in, they'll probably do another re-release or something like they did for Avatar 1. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll figure out a way to keep it in theaters for 90 days, like Top Gun. Like, it'll probably get over the hump, which is bananas uh, and probably comfortably confirming an avatar 3 which is crazy cameron also was saying some comments over the weekend about avatar 4 and 5 probably happening like oh disney's gonna push me into it i guess i got no choice like this (laughs) 
<laughs> this moronic like hat in my hand the humi- humility thing uh you know it's 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 fine i i like avatar fine but boy nobody can compete with james cameron's ego which apparently is earned because he, he can he can clear the budget meanwhile uh, jason bloom uh owner of bloom house was tweeting all weekend about megan oh my god he could not get enough people to go see this thing this is the biggest Horror release in January since 2012 uh, with The Devil Inside. Uh, so it's a big deal for them, right? Like, January is traditionally a terrible time to be at the movies. Megan is clearly rising above. The secret yeah, we... appears to be the memes. <laughs> yeah, well, we <laughs> we, t- we talk about how January is where you dump everything that, that you don't really know what to do, do with. There's a couple of other releases, like Plane, that just is super generic. Or, you know, it's a lot of Oscar films from 2022. Uh <laughs> as well um and yeah like you said it's defi- it's also defying expectations yeah uh so yeah wild week at the movies i guess uh meanwhile puss puss and boots is doing pretty good uh it came in number three with 12.4 million 12.4 million dollars domestic so not too shabby 200 million worldwide so we're probably getting uh, another puss and boots puss and boots movie and uh yeah babylon is continuing to be at the <laughs> absolute bottom of the pile with a domestic total of $13.5 million. Oh, my God. I wonder if that... There's no way that movie will play any nicer overseas, right? Like, it's not... That's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very L.A. Hollywood movie. It's, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, maybe the Brits will like it a little, but probably not much. Uh, that's what's going on at the movies this week. For more, keep it here on Offscript. With that, we should probably move into our formal review of Megan. Uh, boy... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I should be the first to say that I was a little skeptical about this feature. I'm excited that we're finally talking about it. Andy's going to take the summary on it. Andy, please uh, take it away. Megan? You should probably run. So this is the latest horror film from Atomic Monster and Blumhouse. Their latest. These two separate horror studios have combined to work together to bring bring us uh, horror and kind of take over the kind of independent horror space. It's directed by Jared Johnstone, who has done uh, TV before this, written by James Wan and Akila Cooper. Akila Cooper famously wrote Malignant, which Zach is a big fan of. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, Megan is about Gemma, uh, played by Allison Williams, who you'll recognize from Get Out. She plays the, gr- the girlfriend in that. Uh, Gemma is a workaholic. Uh, she works for some tech company building uh, kind of toys for kids. The movie opens with this great toy commercial for this like grotesque Furby-esque thing that, that's totally interactive and you need an app to play. Um, and they go all in and it's this horrific thing. And it, it's kind of about how kids are so addicted to the, the technology. Um, and this is her life. Uh, and she's also working on this secret project, this doll that could really revolutionize the industry. But tragedy strikes, and uh, her niece Katie's parents are, are killed in an accident. Katie comes to live with her, and we get that reluctant parent uh, setup that, that we've seen so often. Gemma is not ready to be a mother. She's not ready to be a pa- parent. She doesn't really know how to. She just works with, you know, she's an inventor. She she works with her hands. She's, she's not really good at this whole thing, doesn't really know how to parent 
And, but she has a bright idea of saying, hey, let me, this doll that I've been working on, it's it's a learning computer, just like the T-1000, uh, just like the Terminator. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you make friends with it and, you know, it'll learn to be your guide. And things go really well initially. This, the doll learns about Katie and uh, helps parent, helps soothe her, helps copper. Now, it's kind of a therapist. Um, but of course, like any good sci-fi story, the AI will eventually become self-aware, will be will become concerned with its own existence, and go- eventually goes on on a big terror spree, which we we've all seen in in the trailers. So that's our setup, Zach. What'd you think? Chucky, Annabelle, Brahms, Megan. There have been a lot of horror dolls over the years, uh, and Megan treads the same ground, I think, as pretty much all of those. Uh, but manages to stand out in a unique way by embracing the camp, right? Doesn't lean all the way in. Uh, it manages to kind of step back and look at itself as a bit of a goofy concept. And I think it kind of works for what Megan's doing. Um, I think it might be a little overpraised, in my opinion. I also thought the same <laughs> thing as Malignant. Um, and uniquely, I think Megan stands apart from Malignant in that it's not kind of the first to break out and do this currently. Malignant kind of paved the way. People compared Barbarian to that. Now we're here with this. Um, while they're all different features, like, Megan literally opens with (laughs) a camp ad that's very funny. The second line in the feature is about a dead dog. It's great. Um, it knows exactly (laughs) what it is, but that doesn't necessarily make it like a good movie. So I, I'm excited to talk about it because I, I feel conflicted. I think it does some stuff well. Uh, I do have some issues with it. Let's talk about Megan. Uh, where do you want to get started? Um, well, let's kind of talk about tone because I, th- I think this is something that surprised me. Um, it's a horror movie, but it's very campy, and it's it's almost a horror comedy. Like, it is so funny. And, like, like it's never really scary at, at any point. You're, you're never really terrified, and a lot of the terror is is kind of... Uh, the scary moments are kind of tongue in cheek and, and make you laugh. Like there's parts where Megan does super, super creepy stuff and it, you can't help but laugh, but it's also, it's both creepy and and funny at the same, same time. The other thing that the movie does really well, and I think helps it succeed is that it takes its premise very seriously. Uh, Gemma being th- this uh, robotics uh, developer at this tech company. She's very passionate about the work and like the, the issues there about having to, develop a new toy in time for the holidays it's very real and also the the death of of her um, niece's parents i guess her sister um it it takes this premise very seriously like the first half of this could go in any direction it could be a drama it could be a comedy it could be a dramedy it could be a number of things but because it it really takes time to set up your characters and our situation very seriously then like it pays off more when it gets into the to the camp Andy's totally right. Uh, the kind of setup in the front is actually smart here and works out very differently. Um, our, our our young protagonist, Violet, is like tragically an orphan right at the open with a pretty clever like three, three scene sequence that sets up our beginning. Um, and suddenly she is kind of forced to live with Allison Williams character, Gemma, who is this kind of tinkerer inventor who's been working on this big project and is under under pressure from her boss and uh now like the two of them kind of have to figure out how to get along so the introduction of like a doll to help bridge that gap is perfect right like it 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 would work in in any of the other doll movies 
But Megan is unique in that she is basically like parenting <laughs> Violet, where Gemma should be doing that. So <laughs> yeah. you get yeah, you, you get a unique bit of spin on it where where a character genuinely kind of stops down the movie and says, Hey, Gemma, shouldn't like, you know, we'd be te- we we don't need to teach Megan how to do all of these things. We don't need to teach Megan to tell Violet to eat her peas and and put her co- her, her water cup on the coaster. Like that's something you should be doing. That's a social interaction you should have. And 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 Gemma embraces this idea that like, no, technology can handle that for us. That way we can enjoy our lives and technology can do it. And you get this clever like space where this movie hangs out, where it's like between the people who want to be on their iPhones all the time and the other people who want to have like a genuine authentic experience. Authenticity is huge nowadays. And Megan manages to like kind of thread that needle by tackling these topics while also being horror camp right self-aware horror like it's kind of funny when it needs to be and it's a little serious when it needs to be and it ends up being like a relatively charming feature like it really does like i I think that that front-loaded stuff with violet now being like needing a guardian and Gemma being like yeah i guess i can take her like actually kind of works like and that's because of allison williams uh working it in the cast as Gemma. uh ronnie chang also as a very funny <laughs> boss, like just, just kind of a jerk who who is another like bit of casting who like they know exactly what he's doing. Like he knows what he's doing. He knows why he's there. He's hamming it up. He's doing his daily show bits. Fantastic. Uh, who else is in this movie that's worth talking about? Um, a couple of lab assistants played by Jen Van Epps and Brian Jordan Alvarez. Uh, that's kind of it. The budget's real small here. They did they didn't need big talent. I think where they get like their most effective stuff is in the doll right which i think we have to we got we got to talk about megan <laughs> yes so th- it's this lifelike doll that is you know it's like three and a half feet high deadpan look and at first it's very helpful and it's and it it the scary part of this is not the killer doll the scary part is the technology and like the ai part of this because like the, for example the doll asks oh how did katie's parents die and they don't really want to talk about it. And so she does she does an internet search and like finds it. Oh, and qu- like quotes the news article where like, oh, they were brutally killed in the car accident. When, um, it, so that's really the scary part. And but you know she just has this deadpan look and really great voice work um, by uh, Jenna Davis, who did did the voice where that it's charming but also lethal at the same same time and. You know, Megan's primary, like her prime directive is to protect Katie from any physical or emotional harm. And this is where things kind of get to the extreme because anything that threatens even Gemma herself, her guardian, uh, Megan views a- as a threat. But it, it's so, like I said, parts are really creepy and then parts are just so funny because of like the things that the doll decides to do to make the child feel better. Yeah. Uh, Jenna Davis, by the way, voice of Megan, notably a Dallas gal. She's from Plano. Who knew? Uh, yeah. Megan is like very simply played. It's a really easy effect, right? You get a young girl. Uh, Amy Donald is the woman, girl who played like the body of Megan. And you just stick like, you know, kind of an animatronic looking mask or maybe just like a flat mask and CGI it after the fact. And they put these like goofy oversized gloves on her hands. It looks super fake. Like if you look at Megan's hands in any shot or in the movie or the trailer, they look terrible. But like you put her in some decent outfits and most importantly, like you give her really specific movements and like you get this like uncanny valley space where like Megan is fundamentally supposed to be a robot and clunky, but like moves very fluid, but doesn't have a face that is particularly fluid and her (laughs) eyes kind of flit around the room. And this all like 
the blinking. Ahead. The blinking, yes. Like, and the eyes kind of moving. This all builds to a head when you get to, of course, the action sequences, the kills. Uh, you've seen the trailer, right? You know what's going on in Megan. You've got her dancing down hallways and, like, running on all fours through the woods, which is where, like, the, the creep does not work, but the, the hilarity comes out. Like, those are the moments you're supposed to be laughing. And I think, like, any good slasher... That's kind of the way it's supposed to be, right? Like you're kind of supposed to chuckle along with Ghostface and scream. Like you're 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 kind of supposed to root for the the teenagers to die in X. Like yeah. that's that's kind of part of the point. And Megan like manages to find that and hold on to it, just like Malignant did, and say, "Hey, you know what? Like it's not so important that these characters are dying. What's important is your experience watching them die and the way you perceive it." And and they're catering very specifically to us. Uh, for us to like this character and get a laugh out of what's happening, uh, even if it's, you know, something terrible like child murdering. But, you know, that's uh, that's Megan. And that's where I think part of this movie um, falls a little short is that it's a PG-13 horror. So they have to tone down a lot of the vi- violence. That kind of th- that's the kind of thing that would have put this over the edge if he would have done an R rated film done some really grisly uh kills uh because they're toned down or like the camera cuts away right at the you know that you see like blood splatter so it's a lot of implied violence no graphic gory violence like we like on this show um th- that's co- like like you got in malignant actually <laughs> that would have been a good um I, if they do a sequel i think they should definitely push for an r, r rating and really go for it so um yeah but that's it, one th- one thing that i think kind of falls short uh, so i agree um it, it it was originally shot to be an r-rated film uh imdb says in the editing room they figured out that the movie was basically shaping up to be pg pg-13 and they could just cut a few scenes and it would work I'm not quite sure that's the case. Oftentimes, PG-13 is going to net you larger ticket sales, and that definitely wouldn't hurt for this feature. It would have been very easy for marketing to go, you know what? We don't know if this is going to work. The idea is a little immature. Why don't we dumb it down a little? And that's not a bad thing, I think, in general, except it does hurt some of what's supposed to be like of the more suspenseful scenes, and it makes it a bit bit softer of a feature all around uh there's one uh kill in particular i was reading the reddit movie thread afterwards and people were genuinely confused like how it worked because it wasn't obvious enough on screen and people like you don't really see the aftermath or anything so it's not like patently obvious how a character is killed uh you know you could get on the internet later and see oh okay that that's how it worked i'm happy to explain it andy after because you're probably thinking who the hell are you talking about but um, the point is like, I think cutting away from some of the violence does kind of hurt the feature for a big dummy like me. And additionally, like for all of my praise in its structure, uh, the pacing is way lopsided in this feature. Uh, it is nearly an hour before you get to a kill. And we know from the trailer after 45 seconds of watching that there's supposed to be some killing. So, and the, and the movie's only an hour 42. So over half of the runtime is completely missing the horror the stuff. Setup. Yeah, like it's you know it's kind of there. It's suspenseful, and there's some there's some decent stuff in there, but it's mostly introduction of characters and concepts, and it's just a little lopsided, and that makes it a bit dull in the second act. But it's a surprisingly good open and a pretty decent close. Uh, and I was surprised, I think, how much I actually ended up enjoying Megan. Um, yeah, like a lot of horror, it has a really strong. It goes out with a bang on the third act. Yeah, and I think that's probably for the best. Uh, I know with how much money it's made, Jason Bloom is already talking about, oh my God, we're going to greenlight dead sequels. <laughs> I mean, he was Started on Twitter all now, weekend. Yeah. He was going nuts. 
so I'm glad I'm glad they got a feature on their hands. Uh, it never hurts to have somebody new in horror. Um, any other thoughts or recommendations, Andy? I think I'm ready. Would you recommend Megan? Yeah, absolutely. Especially to fans of horror, it's it's fun. It's camp. It's not scary. It's it's really pretty funny. Uh, if you're new to horror, this would be a good <laughs> entry, I think, because it, it's nothing too too terrifying or too grisly or anything like that. Great performances from our leads, Allison Williams, and uh, I said Amy Donald, who plays Megan, Violet McGraw, who plays Katie, who she's the niece whose parents parents have died. It's a small film. It's a tight hundred minutes. I really enjoyed it. Highly recommend. I think I'm in the same boat. I like I got problems with Megan, but like for what it's worth, it's a pretty soft feature. Uh, you know, there were a lot of, a lot of children in our movie theater, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. And I say that and I, I'm sure people think, oh, he means teenagers because he's old. No, literal children, like six to eight year olds with their parents, like watching this movie. And like that makes it a bit painful. But I think Watching it with friends, it's a decent Halloween watch. Like, you know, you could do worse than Megan. It's a little goofy, maybe a little too goofy for me, but like I, I see the appeal. And I, I, I think I think this is gonna be one of those movies people come up and ask me about for the next couple of months and they're like, Oh, you do a movie podcast? Did you see Megan? And I'll be yeah. <laughs> I'll say, Come listen to Oscar Film Reviews, subscribe, rate, and review. New episodes every Tuesday. That's that's what I'll tell them. And that's what I'll tell you for more interviews, more reviews just like Megan. Uh with that, we should probably move into our next segment. Andy, you mind introducing this for us? It's time for the trailer park. So we haven't done trailer park in, in a while, uh, but we got the New Year's here, and so we got a few new trailers down the, the pipeline. First up is Renfield, which is a character from the Dracula uh, universe, uh, Dracula's story. He's Dracula's henchman. Uh, this is a horror comedy starring... Nicholas Holt, and of course, Nicholas Cage as a titular Dracula. Uh, Nicholas Holt. Th- th- this trailer is kind of crazy. Nicholas Holt goes to this, uh, it's like an AA meeting where he's talking about he's in this abusive, toxic relationship. He needs to get out. Everyone thinks he's talking about a significant other. He's clearly <laughs> talking about Dracula. Um, and it's kind of all, all over the place. At one point, Renfield takes, uh, he, he eats a bug and he kind of gets superpowers. He, he fights off a bunch of demons or something. And Nicolas Cage is just like, he looks so ridiculous. It's so, he looks so absurd. He's got these like a row of fangs and just the makeup is all over the place. Um, I love it. It's, it's so campy. Uh, it, I, I'm a little excited for it. Zach, what'd you think? I'm kind of in the same boat. The trailer plays, I think, better than the concept does in my head. Or, or worse, I should say, than the concept does in my head. Like, the trailer's all right, but I was really excited by the idea of Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage doing a comedy together. Like, I think both of them have really great comedy chops, and I could I can imagine them playing off of each other really well. So doing this, like, master apprentice thing is pretty cool, and then layering on top of that, of course, some gothic horror maybe some action, I think is a decent fit. I think Cage's Dracula is going to be fun. People may forget uh, Nicholas Holt did Warm Bodies in 2013 where he plays a zombie in a like Shakespearean spin on a romance. Like I think it was Romeo and Juliet or something like that. I don't even really remember. But like he's definitely done goofy stuff like this before. Like I think he can carry it. I think Cage will be fun. Aquafina's in it. Not such a bad feature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a wild Aquafina appears. Yes. Oh, yeah. She comes in like 45 seconds in the trailer. Like, oh, God. Uh, the next thing we need to talk about is Evil Dead Rise. 
So Evil Dead Rise is the new Evil Dead feature from writer-producer Sam Raimi. Uh, Sam is not directing this movie, unlike, uh, well, the first three Evil Dead he movies. He was Evil one Dead of the writers. Yes, uh, yeah, writer, yeah, right. And he uh, helped write Evil Dead 2013, uh, which I really liked, but I don't know, one for everybody. But this is Evil Dead Rise, new standalone feature uh, starring a young family, a mom and her three kids living in an apartment in, I think, New York. When uh, somehow one of them comes across in the street or an alley or something, uh, a plastic bag and rips it open, and it's the Necronomicon. And one of them reads from it, and mom gets possessed, and suddenly bad things are happening. Uh, this looks great. This looks really God, I hope <laughs> it's as good as it looks. I really do. Like, it looks grisly. God, there's some brutal-looking kills. Like, oh, man. Like, it, it looks like Evil Dead. I can't wait. I was shocked, shocked by some of the the trailer stuff. There, there's a red band and a green band trailer. We saw the green band cut, I think, when when we uh, were, were in the watching Megan. But the red band trailer, oh my gosh! Like some of it, yeah. I I was like oh, horrified <laughs> by because it, it's very graphic. There's grisly stuff, and that yes. that's what we want from the modern Evil Dead. Yeah, uh, a bunch of unknown actors in in the roles, which is always nice because then you don't know who's gonna die when everyone's unknown. If there's a star in there, you're like, well, they're gonna last. So right, that's always and it just looks creepy. You got this possessed mom. It's it takes place I, in like a high rise building. I love um, how this is something Evil Dead 2013 got right. Like number one, if you're not gonna have Sam Raimi there, don't do the comedy. Like do do focus on the horror, which is great. Number two. God, it just looks grimy and dirty and sweaty. And, like, everything looks like it's covered in grime and, like, ugh. Like, and then you start cutting people's arms off and stuff. And, like, oh, God. Like, just, man, I can't wait. For for all, for all the goofy fun I think people have at the movies, like, I especially with horror nowadays, I really hope Evil Dead Rise uh, manages to rise above. That'd be a pleasure. That'd, that'd be a treat. That's right. And, uh... Our latest trailer, which actually just dropped this morning, is called uh, Bo is Afraid, which is the latest from director Ari Aster, who famously did Hereditary and Midsummer, two of the most kind of iconic uh, horror films in the in the last uh, five, ten years. Uh, those are his first two films. He knocked it out of the park with Hereditary, followed it up with a great film with Midsummer, and we finally get Bo is Afraid, which is a really crazy bizarre trailer i'm gonna do my best to describe it stars uh walking phoenix and it, it it has him kind of going across timelines uh it's not necessarily a multiverse thing but you see him as a a young person a young adult older adult a, a you know senior citizen adult and it reminds me a lot of um oh gosh now i'm picking what's the jim carrey romance movie with uh Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> Eternal yeah, Sunshine. that one. Eternal Sunshine. That. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, where it's just, it looks insane. It doesn't particularly look scary, which which I think it still is, because I think it is still in in the horror vein, but it's just a, a bizarre thing. I've never seen anything quite like this. It reminded me of some really crazy films. Synecdoche, New York. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. Those kinds of movies. I, I have no idea what, it, what it's uh, about, but it's kind of just a... Uh, decade spanning thing uh zach what, what are your thoughts so the the initial look at Bo is afraid was not outstanding uh it was it's based on a short uh, ari aster shot before he did hereditary i think of the same name and for production for a long time 
people weren't quite sure what it was going to be, but the working title was Disappointment Boulevard, which oh, like that's right, that's right. Look, I know this is an audio form, so it probably doesn't sound as good in your head as it looks on paper, but Disappointment Boulevard is a much stronger title. And it was a shame when he changed it to Bo is Afraid, and even more so when posters started to come out. And the poster for Bo is Afraid looks terrible. <laughs> it, yeah, look, it looks it really bad. And it was like, okay, so the title got worse and the poster looks bad. What is this going to be? I am very pleased to say, having seen the trailer this morning, I have so much more confidence in whatever Aster is doing. This looks like a zany, wild adventure of a ride. It looks like it's going to have some spook horror. I love Nathan Lane. I like Amy Ryan. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix is a delight. I can't wait. I don't know what's going to happen in Bo is Afraid, but like, I bet I'm going to have fun at the movies. And like, that's that's what we need more of. I think Bo, Bo is Afraid looks like good stuff. <sighs> And with that, we yeah, should I'm move in, into it. I'm excited. For, I'm excited for it, mostly because of who's behind it. Like I said, written and directed by Ari Aster and Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix is very, very particular about the projects he he chooses. So, I, if he's decided on it, I'm usually on board. Yeah, I think I think he's uh, got a good head on his shoulders. We'll, we'll see how his character fares. And with that, we should move into our final review of the episode. Uh, like I said at the open, this was a smaller feature that I think flew under a lot of people's radars, but. If you've been on Netflix lately, you might have seen it. Uh, if you've been perusing, you might have been like, oh, what's this new feature? Christian Bale's in it. It looks kind of like a dark, gothic murder mystery. Uh, from director, writer-director Scott Cooper, the movie is The Pale Blue Eye. What is this? Blood, symbols, rituals. In The Pale Blue Eye, it is 1830 in a very cold October in New England and at West Point Academy one morning uh, a scream rings out somebody's found a young cadet who's hung himself just outside of the walls of the military academy uh much to their horror once the body is carted inside uh the coroner finds that when he's left the room at one point or for the evening I think uh somebody breaks in and steals the cadet's heart right out of his chest cuts it right out so uh, d a, a, a esteemed alcoholic detective uh, Augustus Landor is called, <laughs> uh, played by Christian Bale, uh, to come to West Point and try to break through uh, the cadets' kind of general code of silence and this, uh, you know, kind of kind of cold October horror vibe uh, to find out what happened to this young cadet and hopefully make sure nothing else happens to any others. And it's it's there at West Point where he meets a young cadet who's willing to talk to him by the name of Edgar Allan Poe, the writer in his young age, before he would go on to do great things, played uh, quite brilliantly, I should say, at the open by Harry Melling, uh, who you, you would know from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, or uh, even more mainstream, uh, he plays Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter movies. We've talked about Harry on this show before. This kid has got talent. He's got the heat. He's got the smoke. He's really good in this flick. So I'm excited to talk about him teaming up with Christian Bale in what is kind of like a horror historical mystery, almost like a buddy cop feature to solve the mystery of this telltale heart. Andy, what did you think of the pale blue eye? I liked a lot of this film. Most of it, uh, good performances, really great mood. Like it's cold. It's dark. It, you know, it's the middle of winter. You can't see people are out at night. Uh, it, it's a spooky movie and it's a good mystery, but it, it guts, you feel like the movie is over. And then I look and there's like 25 minutes left and I'm like, Oh no, 
what are they gonna do? So I like the the, the majority uh, of this movie, but I, I do think it kind of, kind of loses its way towards the end. I'm in the same boat. Like I think this is actually a pretty good feature uh, with a pretty good writer director and a really really stellar cast. I mean Christian Bale, Harry Melling, Timothy Spall, Toby Jones, uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Robert Duvall, Gillian Anderson is in this feature. Like. And they're all doing pretty good. Uh, admittedly, I should say, as the lead, Christian Bale is just a little too toned down. He reminds me of Sam Rockwell and See How They Run. He plays this kind of weary detective who's got a drinking problem, who's like a little too low energy. And the other people around yeah. him, namely Harry Melling and Gillian Anderson, are stepping on the gas the whole time. And they elevate the feature. And it's frustrating because we saw Bale in Amsterdam last year when he is going all the way. Oh, God, he's got the makeup and he's like twisted up and in pain. And here answer. he's just kind of like a quiet, pensive, mysterious guy, which is not bad. But I don't, I don't think it quite it quite clears the hump. Meanwhile, uh, Harry Melling is fantastic as Edgar Allan Poe. He's got this thick southern drawl and he's got the like the black locks and he's got this <laughs> goofy shaped head that makes him stand out is like just unique enough from everybody else and i swear the kid's stealing scenes right out from under bail like it's crazy how good he is in this movie he's excellent excellent yeah yeah the the performances are are on one hand really good and like you said there's basically three three different levels you got christian bale who's really toned down and whose accent is not just his accent everyone's accent besides harry mellon is kind of all over, over the place i think because the, there's a bunch of Br british actors that are forgetting that they're in uh, supposed to be in america uh, Christian Bale's, like you said, a little bit too toned down. He 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 just doesn't have enough personality. Harry Mellon is like doing Shakespeare uh, in front of <laughs> in front of everybody. He's so good because he's so eccentric, and he's like he, he's very articulate. He's he's very well read. He uses a lot of big words and flowery dialogue. Um, you can tell he he's a writer. And then you have Gillian Anderson, which I don't know what she's doing. <laughs> Because like she comes out, she f sounds like she's doing a caricature of a Southern Belle of doing this like, oh my, I do, ha I do believe I have a case of the vapors. Like that's how she sounds, and I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> she sounds like, I mean, she sounds like me trying to do an impression of a Southern woman, and it's, and she kind of has, she's just overacting everything. She's not in a lot of scenes, but it's just, it's really bizarre and, and really funny. But most everyone else is pretty solid in this movie. Anderson, like for what it's worth, what she's doing is immersive. I didn't even know it was her till the end of the movie, until I hit, hit credits. I was like, oh my god, that's Shelley Anderson. I was thinking, I was like, that woman's tremendous. Boy, she's really doing something, and uh, she sure was. Uh, Jillian Anderson is just going for it. And I just think, I don't know. Like I, I keep thinking, Bale probably shot this alongside Amsterdam, and Am like you show up to the Amsterdam set, like, all right. A game, game time, baby, and they'd show up to the set, set for the pale blue eye and be like, practice round, like I'll, you know. I'll do 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 an easy lap today. I'll take I'll take it slow. Like, and I know he's, that's not that kind of actor, but like, I mean, he was in Thor Thor four, and he's really going for it as Gore the God Butcher, and then he's like doing this. So anyway, outside of tone, the much larger, more important bit, the mystery, right? Mm -hmm. What is going on in the pale blue eye? And I do like this kind of like. You know, Poe-esque tribute to, like, stuff that he's done in the past. You get a lot of decent gothic imagery, like the missing heart, the ravens, like the, I don't know, the the, 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 the pentagrams the on the ground, the hole in the floor. Like, you, you do start to get some, like, 
creepy kooky stuff and i think that stuff's really effective it's based on a book i should say by lewis bayard uh and scott cooper uh wrote and directed it uh for the screen i i i think this movie does need to be on netflix i should say it's not not quite big enough for the silver screen it doesn't have that that hollywood polish no and i'm not sure why that is because it feels pretty intimate but like it doesn't i don't know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have that oomph, doesn't have that 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 something like that that's that's that fairy dust that all the big movies have um it's a shame because i feel like a lot of the cast is is really trying for it right yeah the, so well about our mystery there has been a a murder at this uh cadet corps at this military a- academy uh a young soldier has been found hanged um and before the the day is before the coroner can get him his his heart has been cut out of his uh chest and so that that's when uh Augustus Landor the the detective played by Christian Bale comes in to solve this murder and he he doesn't really know where where to start he know everyone pretty much suspects foul play the uh um the hang the hanging is real sloppy the man's found with his feet you know kind of dangling touching the ground wasn't uh, you know it's it's more like he he choked on the rope as opposed to, you know, was dropped from it. Um, so that kind of sets up our thing. And he eventually employs uh, Edgar Allan Poe to be kind of his eyes and ears ar- around the Academy. Like, tell me the things you see, the relationships, who's who, who's playing who, who's upset. Um, and that's kind of where their their relationship develops because he realizes that that Poe is a lot smarter and uh, than people give him credit for. He's very capable person and that's kind of what sets up this relationship yeah uh poe played by harry melling um really gets an opportunity for like a lot of really fantastic dialogue um like andy said very flowery language big vocab uh poe is a writer at heart and melling reads him like like a shakespeare and i think that's where melling gets most of his experience uh i think he did he's been doing a lot of theater Man, like he really is going for it here. I honestly, it's a shame he's not the lead. Like, because I think he easily could be. I, I, this, this kid's got leading man material, in my opinion. But, uh, I, I did like the way the two of these characters kind of bounce off each other. Bale, while being, you know, kind of toned down, is ultimately a pretty quiet individual. Like, he kind of sits back and lets people stew in their own guilt and then kind of gets a confession slowly, whereas Poe is a very curious guy, you know, wide-eyed individual. Like, he wants to know a lot about the world, and he reads, and he writes, and uh, he fancies a lady every now and again who usually don't fancy him because they think he's weird. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's a young guy trying to kind of grow up and, and find his way in the world. So the opportunity to work with this detective is a really big deal for him. But he's got to kind of walk this line because he's also West Point, an academy that's so strict. Uh, when a cadet turns up having committed suicide, they're like, well, it's weird, but it's not that weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's happened before so uh you know it's it's kind of a dark feature I, I love the exteriors like how this stuff looks outside lots of snow and lots of small sets but in its best moments it reminded me of like early tim burton like kind of just you know kind of the woods just kind of go off lots of big scraggly dead trees and you know just just kind of smoke and fog and darkness like i think that stuff is perfect for what's supposed to be like a gothic horror feature i do think it suffers a bit in the pacing it's two hours eight minutes a little long and i i don't want to give away anything for the ending but andy's right it's totally lopsided like i was watching this movie late at night and i checked my my watch when i thought it was wrapping up and was like uh there's an hour to go 
what what is the rest of this movie supposed to be? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think I'm pleased to say it, it does pay off with some quality performances, but um, it it's a little the structure is a little odd. It's a little weird. Just going. It, it also while while like the tone and mood and performances are good, I I feel it's in a lot of ways it's kind of cliche. Uh, if you've watched any kind of mystery movie, you're gonna guess a lot of. Uh, you can predict and guess a lot of what what happens without too, too much trouble. Uh, it, the, our answers and our twists uh, are not as satisfying as they need to be, and also it's not really about much more. This is one thing that I heard Ryan Johnson say very famously uh, in an interview about Glass Onion. He he was saying that when you do a whodunit, the the film cannot rest on the big reveal or the big twist. Like the it, the solving of the mystery can't be the big deal it's got to be about a lot more a lot more needs to be going on on in the film than just the mystery and this and the pale blue eye is kind of that it's kind of all about the mystery and not much more now before we jump into recommendations i do want to see while i think this is uh you know a pretty solid feature uh it is a netflix movie and i should say uh at least in andy and i's experience like netflix has been slacking lately so i do feel pretty comfortable in saying the decent netflix feature like it really is it's it's not that bad you got a good cast i think people clearly believe in scott cooper uh andy what do you think in the, in the kind of pantheon of netflix films it's not half yeah. bad it's, like, it's yeah better, it's better than the average net, net it netflix is film for sure the, the, it would be more like an apple plus film <laughs> yeah you go yeah oh, sure yeah right that five dollar feature uh with that andy would you recommend the pale blue eye yeah i i would uh I would say save it for streaming if it was in theaters, but it's not. It's definitely appropriate for the streaming audience. Uh, it's lacking that Hollywood polish, but it's uh, an interesting mystery. Good performances, very gothic, very uh, creepy and slow, and like I said, good performances. There's a lot going on uh, with it. It has a lot going for it that I did enjoy more. I enjoyed it more than I did it, but it definitely has some shortcomings in, as well. I think I'd recommend it if you're stuck at home and really need something to watch and you're just cruising and you can't really land on it, but it catches your eye and you're like, yeah, maybe that one. Give it a go. Like you could do worse for sure. Like of the, of the casual surfing of Netflix, I think Pale Blue Eyes probably a winner. Uh, if it was in theaters, I'm not sure I'd give such a ringing, ringing endorsement, but that's what streaming is all about, right? Accessibility, bringing, bringing quality products to you. And I think... Pale Blue Eye, in one way or another, is that. Especially in, again, Harry Melling, who I cannot get enough of. That kid's great. I can't wait to see what he does next. Uh, and that about wraps our show for the week. Uh, Andy, what are we watching next week? We got two features up on the dock. Uh, the first is one that we haven't really talked about and haven't heard much around. It's called Skinamarink. And I haven't heard anything about this. I've just seen the title somewhere. It's a new horror thing. We saw the teaser before Megan. Uh, it, I, it's even it's hard to describe. It's a bunch of like kind of fuzzy photos inside of a house. A very Blair Witch. I, I can describe it. Okay, you, go go ahead. You might, do you want to jump in? Okay, yes, I can describe this. Uh, a YouTuber uh, it had a series where he would try to film people's nightmares, and they would comment what like, "Oh yeah, I have frequent nightmares about this," and he would try to film them. And one that he saw come up a lot was. I'm six or seven and I'm in my house at night and my parents aren't there and somebody's in there and I don't know who it is and I don't know what to do and I can't like run or get away. 
And he was like, I have that too. And a lot of people would comment that. So in the vein of making these videos, he developed a full feature called Skinamarink. Uh, it's two children in a house. Uh, it's dark, and that's all I really know. And it's a really odd trailer. It's a micro-budget horror. I think it's in the vein of like Blair Witch or Paranormal, Experience, Paranormal Activity. Uh, very excited to watch this. Great trailer plays great in a theater. Like I, I, it might be, it might be heat. I don't know. So we're gonna go see Skin <laughs> Ring and find out. Um, and then we're also gonna finally take a look at Tar, uh, Todd Field's uh, big epic uh, character study of a fictional, which I didn't. I kept thinking this was a real person, a fictional uh, composer, Lydia Tar played brilliantly, apparently by Kate Blanchett. It's two hours, 40 minutes long. It's on VOD, and we're going to finally sit down and, uh, and see what it's all about. I'm, look, I'm not skeptical about Tar, but we watch a lot of movies for this podcast. So when we miss one and a bunch of, of people. says it's, I know. It's, it's going to save cinema. <laughs> yes. When we miss one and a bunch of people say it's amazing, like in this weird, twisted way, I get more cynical about it because I'm like, what, what did you see that I didn't see? Like, you know, how's this special? So. Hopefully Tar is one that charms me from the ground up. Uh, God, I'm not excited about that runtime, though. Or that VOD price, 20 bucks. Ah, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed the show today, if you liked Megan and you agree with us or disagree with us, or you maybe want to check out the Pale Blue Eye after seeing our review, have any hot takes on new trailers coming out, stories, news, or any other movie-related inquiries, commentary, whatever, you can write into the show and we'll talk about it right here on the show. It's true. It's a huge thing. Fans love it. You can write us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Correspondence, right? The Offscript mailbag. You can contribute. Be a part of the show. Uh, you can find us on our website, offscriptfilmreview.com. You can find us on Facebook at Offscript Film Review, where we live stream the show every Tuesday when we do it at about 4, 5, 5, 5 o'clock CST. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube, where we upload our live streams after the fact. And you can find the show on all these podcast outlets, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia. The best way you can keep up with Offscript is just subscribe. Movies are expensive. Podcasts are cheap. Offscript is free. Who needs to buy movie tickets? And you can listen to our, our handy podcast to tell you how you should feel about the movies. Uh, we love doing this show, and we couldn't do it without fans like you. So with, from all of us at Offscript, uh, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.